Good morning. Before I start, let me say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you to be able to come into this place of worship, Lord, where we give you all the adoration, all the praise, Lord, that you are so worthy of. Lord, we bow down in humble submission to who you are and the great things that you've done for us, the great thing that you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. It's only through him, Lord, that we have salvation. Lord, we give you thanks for all that you've uh, done in our lives and how you've saved us, Lord, how you've provided, how you've taken care of us, Lord. Lord, I pray for the church. I pray for the pastor on the mission trip, his family, Brother Stephen, Lord. I pray for the other missionary trip that's going on, Lord. Lord, I pray for this church as for its members that may be suffering, that may be going through certain things, that may need special blessings, Lord. Those that have lost loved ones, Lord, those that are going through tribulations, persecutions, whatever it may be, Lord, we pray. We pray for them. Lord, and I pray that this church will be a, a light to a lost community. Pray, Lord, that we will be a city upon the hill. Lord, I pray that we will be a vessel to be used to do great things for your name and for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think we all would agree that probably the most well-known Bible verse is John 3.16. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, who, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think one of the reasons why this verse is so popular or so well known is because of the couple of things that in this verse. For instance, the love of God. For God so loved the world. God so loved humanity. Another thing that we see in this verse is salvation found in Jesus Christ. That is, because of God giving his only begotten son, that we have salvation. And that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. So then, it's natural if I, was to, if I were to ask you to give me a verse related to the love of God, you would say, well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And if I asked you to give me a verse that deals with salvation, we naturally go to John 3.16, for salvation is found Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, you will not perish. Now, I think those are very good topics, even though that's not our topic for the day. I want to bring up another verse and to, so that I can bring up this particular topic. I want to talk about the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 36. And if you will stand, we're just going to read one verse. John chapter 3, verse 36. Amen? It reads, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You may be seated. Notice this last verse, the, the last part of the verse. The wrath 
of God abides on him. Now, in the first part of the verse, we see it talks about salvation. But this last part, it talks about the wrath of God abides on him. You don't hear that much about the wrath of God. You hear much about the love of God. I, even recently, I saw a big, bill, big billboard, for God loves you, which is true. But the scripture also says the wrath of God abides on you. How many... How many billboards have you seen that reads that? The wrath of God abides on you. Now, before we get into the points I want to raise about the wrath of God, I think it's good for us to get a definition of wrath and the wrath of God. Webster Dictionary defines wrath as vengeful anger, indignation. That's one definition. The second definition is Retributory punishment for an offense or crime, divine chastisement, you know, receiving punishment. So you see really two aspects of wrath. The idea of the, somewhat of the emotional side, the anger, but then this other side where there's punishment. And so one theological dictionary says it like this when it starts to talk about wrath. It says, is it emotion or is it punishment? And it says in some sense, really, it's both. When you start to talk about the anger or the wrath of God, you see the anger, but you also, you're going to also see the wrath. You're going to see some action. You're going to see some d divine chastisement takes place because of his anger. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29, and if you're familiar with this chapter or with this section of the Bible, this is where the Lord renews or most renews the covenant with the people of Israel before they go over to the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 1, notice what it says. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab. So they're not in the promised land yet. Besides the covenant which he had made with them at Hor. Now skip down to verse 14. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. And so what they're saying, the covenant is being renewed, and want, the Lord wants them to know what's expected of them once they go into the land. I'm going to bless you when you do right. I'm going to curse you when you do wrong. And if you stay on that, in that chapter, you come to verse 22, and I'm going to read from 22 to 28. Listen to what he says when they start to disobey. Now the generation to come, your sons who will rise up, after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, all this land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown, unproductive, and no grass grows in it. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admon, Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. 
all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them, when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is, which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath cast them into another land as it is this day. So you see the anger. You see what the Lord did as far as his wrath, those actions that followed. And there's other verses that we could turn to. You don't have to turn to this verse, but Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 20 reads this. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 6 says, Therefore, my wrath and my anger will be poured out and burned in the city of Judah, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, so they may become a ruin and a desolation as it is this day. The anger and the wrath, the action, the punishment that follows, Nelson's Bible Dictionary defines God's wrath as this. The personal manifestation of God's holy moral character in judgment against sin. Wrath is neither an impersonal process nor irrational and fitful like anger. It is no way vindictive or malicious. It is his holy indignation, God's anger directed against sin. God's wrath is an expression of his holy love. If God is not a God of wrath, his love is no more than frail, worthless sentimentality. The concept of mercy is meaningless and across a cruel and unnecessary experience for his son. You see the wrath of God, his anger, his indignation, his holy indignation. Wayne Grudem, a Baptist theologian, writes this about wrath. It may surprise us to find how frequently the Bible talks about the wrath of God. Yet if God loves all that is right and good, all that conforms to his moral character, then it should be not surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. God's wrath directed against sin is therefore closely related to God's holiness and justice. God's wrath may be defined as follows. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Let me read that again. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. That's God's wrath. In other words, God is not playing when it comes to sin. God is not just laughing sin off. Now, first point, since we now get an idea of God's wrath, his anger, his punishment that will follow his anger, 
first thing we need to recognize then is this. God's wrath comes as a result of sin. Don't miss that. God's wrath comes as a result of sin, a sinful action. Sin, wrath. That's what the Scripture is going to teach us. That if you want to know why God is angry, you want to know why God punishes, it's because of sin. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I want you to see this point. I want you to see it clearly. I don't want you to leave here thinking today, is God really upset about sin? Is wrath really connected to sin? I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be confused. I, I want you to have this, I want you to have this worked out. I want you to be solid on this. I want you to have full grasp of this. I think the scripture really brings it home. You all with me? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Notice what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice of God as a fragrant aroma. Verse 3. But immorality, talking about sexual sin there, or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as improper among, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For know this, for this you know with certainty, for this you know with certainty that no immoral, or impure person, or covetous man who is an idolater, has, any, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of these things. Now, you might say to me, preacher, what are these things that brings about the wrath of God? Well, the things are what he just listed as far as the sins, the immorality, the sexual sins, the fornication, adultery, homosexuality, filthiness, coarse jesting, playing, impure, covetousness. All these things, he says, it brings about the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. Those that are disobeying, disobeying, they are doing these things. He says, these things brings on the wrath of God. This whole list. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. You're going to see very similar, are not are very close to the exact same language being used. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Paul to the Colossians, different letter, different book. Watch what he says. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Amen? Notice what he says. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, 
evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you once also walked. It's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. That the wrath of God is upon the sons of disobedience. Notice that, again, connection between disobedience and wrath. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, some might not want to make that connection where they see disobedience, the children of disobedience, being connected with wrath. But turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 and look what these verses says. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3. I want you to pick up something here. I want you to see the connection between disobedience and wrath clearly, clearly being demonstrated in these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly live in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, don't miss this, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. By nature. You know what that means? That you were born with the wrath of God on you. You don't have to do anything. When you are born, the wrath of God is upon you. You will disobey. This is your nature. And just as sure as it's your nature, just as sure as the wrath of God is on you. Now, I know that this is not popular. I know it's not something that we really want to deal with. I know we want to somewhat dismiss it and say it just can't be like that. Now, you mean to tell me that sweet little child, that good person, you mean God's wrath is on them? Yes. Yes. This really brings us to our second point. Now, remember my first point, that the wrath of God comes or is a result of sin. And I think we clearly saw that with these verses, that the wrath of God comes by cause of sin, as a result of sin. My second point is this right here. God's wrath is a reality. It's real. We may want to dismiss it. We may want to close our eyes to it. We may want to be ignorant of the fact we may want to do whatever we can to get away from the truth that God's, that God's wrath is real. I don't care how much love you got for the children of wrath. I don't care how much praying you are doing for them. I don't care what they might be doing and other things they might be good as far as, you know, uh, doing other things. They come to church. They might pay their tithes. Look, they, they help the homeless. They do all these things. But 
they are still not in Christ. The wrath of God is still, it's real. It's real. And we've seen the wrath of God past, present, and future. To let you know just how real it is. Think back even as far as biblical times. Think back. Let's see, can we see God's wrath? I just gave you scriptures related to Deuteronomy chapter 29, but let's go back even further than that. Can we think of times where God's wrath came as a result of saying, oh, let's go with Noah. Let's go with Noah. Let's go with this wicked world and what God's wrath did. Did he not wipe out the world? And as the scripture says, only eight were saved because of what? Sin wickedness. Let's think about a couple of cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did he wipe them out? Did God just wipe them out because they were being nice, good people, righteous people? No. They were committing wicked sins. God wiped them out. You got to understand that this wrath that I'm talking about is real. God has shown us that it's real. So we've seen it in the past, even presently. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. I want to show you what the Apostle Paul writes about God's wrath being revealed. Remember, we're dealing with God's wrath here being a reality. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. But notice what the verse starts off saying, for the wrath of God is revealed. It is revealed. Even in the text right here, and even what we still see presently, that God's wrath is revealed. Now, someone might say, well, how is it revealed? Now, at times, people point to natural disasters. People talk about terrorist activities and all these different things. But you know what, how the wrath of God is revealed in this text? Go to verse 21, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, 24, and look, while, look how Paul is going to describe God's wrath being revealed. Therefore, therefore, God gave them over into the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to the grating passions for their women exchanged the unnatural, exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. That God will take his hands off of you. That if you won't sin... God says, go ahead. One 
author says it like this, talking about the wrath of God in this particular verses, these particular verses, he says, uh, God operates where he, it operates not by God's intervention, talking about God's wrath. He says, God's wrath operates not by intervention, but precisely by his not intervening, by letting men and women go their own way. God abandons stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness, and the resulting process of moral and spiritual degeneration is to be understood as, his, as a judicial act of God. This is the revelation of God's wrath from heaven. You get it? God takes his hands off. God is no longer intervening. You want that? God says, go ahead. That's the wrath of God. You know, there's other scriptures that I can go to constantly. The, the, the wrath of God is constantly talked about in the scriptures. You know what? One, I read one book that says this. There are 20 different Hebrew words used approximately 580 times that refer to the God's wrath in the Old Testament. 580 times just Old Testament. So you get to the New Testament, that's going to put you over 600 times talking about God's wrath. God's wrath is a reality. Past, present, and future. Can I give you one text, one passage dealing with the future wrath of God? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. You know, at times people are like, man, I don't like getting that book of Revelation. <laughs> oh, the Revelation. Well, if you're a sinner, you should be scared of Revelation. You should be scared. The tribulation period. Oh, the seals being broken. All these things that we see happening. And when you get to Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6 is when the sixth seal is broken. Tribulation period. Six seals. Verse 12 says, in Revelation chapter 6 says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains, and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Oh, woe is us. The great day, not only him who sits on the throne, but notice what it says, the wrath of the Lamb. Now, who's the Lamb? Jesus. The wrath of Jesus. Paige Patterson says this about these verses. Clearly enough, what John saw with the open of the sixth seal was unprecedented cosmic upheaval. Most of the listed disasters are known today, but what happens with the open of the sixth seal is beyond modern comprehension and magnitude and extent. This may be seen by the reaction of the population of the earth, who upon viewing the catastrophic consequences conclude that the magnitude is so great that it must be the hand of God 
and the wrath of the Lamb. You know what he's saying? You think you saw something so far. You think you worried about Iran. You think you worried about these Middle East countries and terrorists. That you ain't seen nothing yet. Nothing yet. You haven't seen anything yet. But when you see the wrath, well, we won't, well, I won't be here. We won't be. But my point is the reality of the wrath to come. It's real. It's something that you haven't seen before. He said, the modern mind, you're not ready. You think. You think you're ready. You think you've seen something like this. Where they're saying to the rocks, fall on us, hide us. When I was reading on this section, talking about the reality, I came across an article by Dr. Milliken, who's a professor at Mid-America, he, he was my advisor and, and professor. And this is what he said about the doctrine of, of the wrath of God. He says, the doctrine of the wrath of God is unpopular in much modern theological discourse. Some deny that there is ever anger with God. Others think of God's wrath as an impersonal moral cause and effect process that results in unpleasant consequences of poor evil acts. Still, others view God's wrath as his anger against sin, but not the sinner. God's wrath is real, severe, and personal. The idea that God is not angry with sinner belongs neither in the Old Testament or the New Testament. God is personal. God is a personal moral being who is unalterably opposed to evil and takes personal action against it. Wrath is the punitive righteousness of God by which he maintains his moral order, which demands justice and retribution for injustice. John MacArthur writes this, one of the great tragedies of modern Christianity, including much of evangelicalism, is the failure to preach and teach the wrath of God and the condemnation it brings upon all with unforgiving sin. The truncated, sentimental gospel that is frequently presented today falls far, far short of the gospel that Jesus and the Apostle Paul proclaim. Whether you wanted to embrace it or not, it's real. And I know some would have us to really move off of this message. I know it's not a popular message. I know people really don't want to hear it. I know as Baptists, we could get that label of, oh, they know they just talk about hell too much. They talk about the wrath of God too much. They talk about the Bible too much. They want to keep us out. I know. I even heard when Dr. Avant was here, he made the statement. Do you remember this? He said when his, his, his daughter's in New York, she's an actress at the theater company. He said, what can we do for the, for the New York area? What, you remember what he said? Keep the Southern Baptists out. Keep us out. You know, they might have these signs and all. I think if Southern Baptists did go with a sign, I believe it would be a good sign. But I know that's not what all we do. But I tell you, one of the things that would happen, because I've been there, I've been in areas like D.C., I've been in that northeast area, and folks like ourselves come, you come with that, that pure gospel, you come in with not just the idea that God loves you, but you're willing to teach this other part of God's wrath. Man, people don't want to hear that. Oh, you, oh, you're not loving them then. You're not loving them if you tell them the truth on this. But that is love. 
that is an expression of his love where you're willing to step out there to that family member that you know that's in sin, to that friend, to that neighbor that you know that are not living according to God's word. It's never easy to do. But I tell people, the closer you get at times, I give this example. Let's say you start inviting your neighbor over, who you know, let's just say neighbors that living in sin, fornicators, or maybe homosexuals, maybe they're lies, people, whatever it is. And you have them over for dinner, you start talking to them, they kids start playing with your kids, you become friends. The closer you get, you think it's going to be easy for you to one day say, look, you're a sinner, the wrath of God is on you. You need to repent. You need to place faith in Christ. You think they're going to want to hear that? It, it, what I'm telling you is no easy way to do it. But even because it's not easy necessarily for us to do it, that doesn't remove the reality of the wrath of God. So we can close our eyes. We can go on just saying, Lord, just, just work, just work. Without you saying anything, you don't want to do your part. And I'm not saying that the Lord don't, doesn't answer prayers, but the Lord also be, tells us, be willing to speak the truth. Amen? So we have to be willing to deal with this reality of what the Scripture says about the wrath of God. God is angry. The sinner needs to know that God is angry with them. You're his enemy, the Scripture says. It's not a popular message, but it's a truthful message. Last point. End on a high note. The wrath of God is removed only in Christ. Isn't that something? With all this I just talked to you about, all this wrath of God is anger. All of this that's directed towards sin in the center. All of this can be removed in Christ. In Christ only. That's it. So if we go back to our verse that I started with, John 3, 36, notice what it says. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he does not obey the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, remains on him. But in Christ, it's taken away. You don't have to worry about the wrath of God if you're in Christ. You don't have to worry about his anger and his wrath when you have Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And these are going to be our last two scripture references. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 10. That verse is just verse 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10. Notice what the scripture says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son, this is Paul's words to the Thessalonians, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It is coming. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. He rescues us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. Same book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. Notice what it says. For God has not destined us for wrath, 
God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he has for us. Not the wrath, not this anger and wrath that I'm talking about, but for salvation through Jesus our Lord. Dr. Milliken finished off this section by writing on the wrath of God by writing this. God's wrath is inextricably related to the doctrine of salvation. If there is no wrath, there is no salvation. If God does not take action against sinners, there is no danger from which sinners are to be saved. The good news of the gospel is that sinners who justly deserve the wrath of God may be delivered from it. You get it? That if there is no wrath, why did Jesus have to die? If there is no wrath, why is the sinner running to Jesus' arm? There's nothing to run from if there's no wrath. If we don't stress to the sinner, look, the wrath of God is on you and abides on you, there's no reason for the sinner to move. He's good. There's no consequences. But once we bring home the wrath of God, and they understand their predicament, they understand their situation, that God's wrath is on them, we are praying that they run to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, that the wrath of God does not remain on them. A few points as far as application. I'll be quick. First point, the Christian should be thankful and show gratitude that you're no longer under his wrath. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? That all this thing, all this wrath that I'm talking about. I would just wish sometimes we would show more of our gratitude, more of our thankfulness by doing the things we should be doing in church, by doing the things we should be doing in our lives. One of the things that's easy for me to pick up on, when I see Christians again, I know I used this example with you all before, when I see Christians come to church without their Bibles, so wait, wait, let me understand. You are thankful to the Lord, for Lord, deliver me from sin. I'm thankful for all that you've done. But uh, as far as bringing your word, no, I'm going to leave that at home. I'm not thankful enough to bring the word to be interested in the very words that tell me about salvation. I'm not interested enough to be reading God's word, studying his word, and then looking to apply his word to my life. We need to show the proper, thank, proper thankfulness and gratitude. Next application. Christians should abstain from the very things that bring upon the wrath, of, that bring the wrath of God. Let us show a disdain for sin. See what I'm saying here? Since we know that we are no longer under the wrath of God, let me now not do the things that I know that's bringing the wrath of God. So if I know fornication, lying, cheating, all these different things, that the wrath of God is going to come because of these things, as a Christian, now I should indulge in them. I should have a hatred toward these things the same way that God would have a hatred for them. Let me not minimize sin. Let me not wink at sin like it's something funny. Make light of it. It's something serious. God hates it, so I should hate it. Third point. Let us witness to those that are still under the wrath of God. Talk to them about the common consequences. Talk to them about their situation. Let's have enough love. Young, old, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. If they have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, 
the wrath of God is on them, and you should tell them so. Now, I'm not telling you not to do this in love. You should do it in love. But do it. You have to do it. It's not simply praying for them. It's not simply living the life before them. It's not simply saying, well, Lord, it's on you that you have a responsibility in this also. Tell them the truth about the wrath of God. And finally, for my unbelievers. Unbelievers, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do not be mistaken. Do not fool yourself. God's wrath is on you. You are destined for hell. If you don't place your faith in him, you can't rely on your mother's prayers, your grandmother's prayers. You can't rely on just coming to church. You can't rely on your good works. You can't rely on Buddha. You can't rely on Muhammad. You can't rely on all these different things. You can't rely on Joel Osteen's sermon just saying as long as we're just going to talk about the good stuff. It's not going to work. It's not going to work until you get down and recognize that Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins that he has paid the price so the wrath of God will not come upon you until you place your faith in him. You are still abiding in the wrath of God. Wrath is all over you. You are drenched in wrath. I pray that this be the day that you place your faith in Jesus Christ.